Hi, I'm Josh Van Berkel. Welcome to the Activate Christchurch podcast. It's our privilege to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. And if you ever find yourself in Christchurch, pop in and say hello. We'd love to see you. You know, um, one thing um, Josh did say at the conference was um, how he feels when he makes everybody laugh. And I was just been sitting in here listening to you all laughing at him. And he just loves that he feeds off it, eh? And he's made, he just destroyed our conference by making everybody laugh. I didn't know whether I was there to get preached to or, or, or it was a comedy series, but it was powerful. And, um, and he's got you all here laughing at his jokes. Man, you're eating out of his hand. You really are. It's unbelievable. I, I just sitting there nodding my head before. But, um, yeah, it is good to be here. It really is. I've been here twice. Um, first time I came, I just came to sit in the church. Um, I was down here doing some stuff with another guy that spoke at the conference, um, Daryl Pye, he's a pastor as well. Um, he travels with me most places. Um, we came and sat here, and we really loved it. And that's when we, because um, um, Daryl's the drummer, and um, that's when we just sat there and listened to your worship, Abel, and just said, man, we've got to get this guy somewhere. And that's why we did get him, and Josh came with him. And, um, and, we, also, and, we, and we also had, uh, <laughs> we also had um, Abel's sister, and she was on the keys. And, um, you know, you probably all know her because she's out at Cornerstone with uh, Andre. And she came along, it was fantastic. And um, I brought down two from uh, Whakatani. And I, I think we put them together. And it was the best worship I've heard for a long, long time because every one of them were passionate, ser- seriously passionate, and loved doing what they do. And, and that's the heart that you have to have for God. Hey. Um, you know, when I came in here, I was already prepared because I've, I've shared my testimony so many places, so many times. Last year, I was in 70 churches last year. And um, I'm booked out all of next year. So I've got this thing pretty much down packed. I mean, that is my life. So I came here prepared, but the Lord always tries to unrattle, to rattle us a little bit. So he gave me a little bit of stuff to share with you first. So I was writing that down was when I got in here. And um, so this is going to speak to your hearts before I start with my testimony. So I wrote this. If you can't truly love and completely honour your wife or partner, it is impossible to love God. Because you can only love God with the same measure that you love your partner or your wife. You can't love God more than you love your wife because it's impossible to do. Does that make sense to you? You don't seem to think so. <laughs> so you're going to tell me that you love God more than you love your wife and you think God's going to honour that. It's not, it's not possible. You can't do it. You cannot do it. Because that's not the right heart. That's why I have to bring this because you're not convinced. It's impossible to love God like that. You can only love God like you love your partner, wife, it's called. That's a holistic view. And I'm going to tell you something because I know some of that you, some of you sitting here are struggling looking at me. And you're going to struggle with my past and who I was and where I've been and how I appear to you. I know that. I understand that. Because you can't see my heart. So you're judging me. Just like Christ was judged. And you know what? If I brought Christ with me here today, and he was standing right next to me, you would dislike him even more than me. And I'll tell you why. Because you're judging with your eyes. Isaiah 53.1, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a dry root, and like a dry root out of dry ground. Which means he grew up as a shoot, as a baby, and his roots were on dry ground, and nothing on dry ground grows well. So he was struggling to be of any good right at the start. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Basically, Christ was ugly. 
It says it in the Bible. It's his book. That's what it says. It's not, it's not even worth laughing because it's the truth. He was ugly. There was nothing to look at him. Nothing to desire him. He was undesirable to look at. It says, okay, I'm pretty good looking. Aren't I, wife? See, I told you. Nothing in his appearance that should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow and familiar with suffering. A man of sorrow and familiar with suffering is my testimony. But Christ had it too. He suffered. Despised and rejected by you lot. By the people that claim to love him. See, if he's standing here right now, you say, man, no, look at this guy. He's ugly. He's nothing to look at. He's suffered all his life. He's been rejected. And then after you finish church and when you're walking out, I say, hey, there was Christ standing there next to me. Where would you end up that day when you walked out this door? Where would you end up? Where would your judgment get you? I'm telling you, there. Suffering. And he was of no esteem. Well, that means that he was thought of very lowly. He wasn't even thought of by people. He was nothing. He wasn't even thought of by people. So just remember what you're thinking when you're sitting here looking at people standing in front of you. And truly, could you love Christ if you're standing in front of you? Because you've all got this picture of this lovely guy with flowing hair and all this rubbish. It's crap. Yet he was ugly. He was struggling. He suffered. He was rejected. And there was nothing of him. The other people that you walk past daily and look at on the streets. They're standing and sitting at the streets wanting to be loved. That was Christ. He was wanting to be loved. But you didn't. You'll think you do. But believe me, you really got to look at your heart. Who you're going to reach. And where you are. And what you're judging. And how you're looking at people. How you're looking at me. See, I go into plenty of churches and I say hello to a lot of people. A lot of people don't even want to say hello to me. Because how I look. They're looking at Christ when they're looking at me. That's who they're looking at. So you consider yourself told off. I can carry on my testimony now. But the Lord told me to say this. Put this down. Well, this is why I was here. When as soon as I got here, I had to get on my phone and start writing this down. Because it was relevant for here. There you go. It had to be said here. Because obviously there's that spirit in here. And don't worry, it's not the only church that that spirit's in. Or people, I should say. But you are the church. So here we go. um, My testimony. What my testimony does is it shows the goodness of God. It actually shows the goodness of God. And the grace of him. Um, Josh said uh, it's a powerful testimony. It is. But it's a broken one. A really, truly broken one. Oh, I'm, I'm dimming it down so you can, so you can receive it. I'm actually taking stuff out so you can actually hear it and receive it. It's good to be in the church, though. So. Yeah, I love church. I really love church. And when you come through those doors, you come here with an expectation that something should change in you. Otherwise, it's, it's pointless. If you're coming into these doors and you're expecting nothing, just to tick the box, be into church, and yeah, it looks good, and they all think I've got it together, and you're all lying because we know you haven't. And then you walk out, great, that's done, let's get home and have chicken and whatever it is. You've got to come through those doors with an expectation that things have changed because things change in this building because this is the Lord's house. 
My life changed in a building just like this. That had a cross on it too. Where's your cross? There it is. <laughs> Lucky boy. He would have got told off, eh? Because believe me, it's got trendy not to have crosses in the church too now. Tons of churches don't even have it. Honest. So that's good. That's good to see you. Yeah, yeah. But it has got trendy to not have a cross. Sad. But I love the church. It's the Lord's house. Things change in this house. I change in this house. That day, radically, you're going to hear it. You know, coming through here, I wrote here, pub. I've just got pub. Expectation. So I grew up on Brighton, on the east side of town. And there was two pubs over there. One was McCormick's and the other was Esplanade. And they were both mine. Um, I didn't own them, but I did. I sold drugs in the Esplanade. That was my pub for all my dealings. And the other one, that's where I socialised. And um, when I went to the pub, I had an expectation, and it always came true, because you get what you expect. I expected to have a fight, get drunk, and get a different woman. Every time, every week. And I got all of those things, because of my expectation. Same as church. You should expect something, or not to fight in the church, or get a different woman either, for goodness sakes. But you should have an expectation of something to change good in here. That's what you've got to expect to come in here. Um, we all have a testimony, and they are all powerful. There must be a test to have a testimony. When I was trying to Google the, what testimony meant, because, I mean, I'm fresh. I've been saved four and a half years, and only not that long ago I found out this was a pulpit. Um, a pastor said, do you want to use the pulpit lucky? And I says, uh, what is it? And it was the stuff to put your stuff on, a thing to put your stuff on. He goes, oh, that there. And I says, oh, yeah, now, now I know what it is. Because so, I am fresh and raw, and um, it is what it is. So I thought, I better Google what testimony means when I first started sharing my testimony. And Google says, testimony, testimony helps you to heal and bring you closer together. Bring us closer together. To help you heal, and you guys, and to bring us closer together. The Latin word for tes- tes- testimony is testis, meaning witness, compassionate witnessing of, a, of our personal series of life. Helps us recover and helps others do the same. That's what it says. It's a powerful thing. Psalm 66, 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for me. Now, this is the part that I really can't stand. Okay. So I'm an Irish Māori. My father was um, Irish from Cork, and my mother was Māori. She was from uh, Ngāpui, from Northland. Um, also from uh, Waikato, Tainu as well. Also got a bit of tūhoi in me. They were getting around back in those days, even though they didn't have any cars, but anyhow. Um, so that's, that's my roots. Okay? So I'm an Irish Māori. And um, that means two things, significant things to me. And the first one is... Um, I eat a lot of potatoes, not heaps of potatoes. I can't help it. My dad was Irish, mum, you know what marries a lot of potatoes, that's all we eat. The Irish are the same. Um, so I eat a lot of potatoes, and I think I've got a good sense of humour too, Josh. You know what the Irish are like, eh? Um, but we're fun-loving people on both sides. We really are fun-loving people, caring people on both sides. I um, mean, you know, when you watch the Irish on St. Patrick's Day, no, when you watch the Irish, they're always passionate about stuff. They, they love stuff. They love to have humour. They, they, they like to have fun. Maldives are the same. But somewhere with the Maldives, we've kind of got things went wrong for us, a lot of us. 
I wrote here, once were warriors. Once warriors, most of you are old enough by the look of it. Not really old enough to look at it. Um, I once warriors when it came out. That was my life. My life was worse than that. It was way worse than that. All of that rubbish was in our house. Um, domestic violence was solid in my house. My father was an alcoholic. Um, my father was also aggressive and angry. And domestic violence, every time my father came home, he'd either attack my mother or myself. He started attacking me when, he was six, when I was six years old. By the time I was nine years old, he'd broken every bone in my face except for my skull. And he used to attack my mother. And um, the town that that happened in is a town that I really hate. And it's just down the road from my house where I live now. And we quite often have to drive through it. And I say to my wife, I hate this town. And I'm glad that when we drive down the road that I grew up on, the house has been bulldozed down. But I still remember it. And there's some residue in me of that hurt, of what I had to witness there. Now, the Lord, I've forgiven my father and forgiven all this stuff. But there's still a bit of residue there because I can't get rid of my memory. Um, it doesn't affect me any longer, but I do get a bit sad about it because I, I just remember what happened to my mother. Um, my father quite often raped my mother in front of me and my sister. And that was something I really battled with. Um, the violence was bad, but that was one part that really affected me. Um, yeah, there wasn't any love in our house. I became unlovable. There was no love in our house at all. And that's one of the main things that we all need as a human, is to be loved and cared about. And Christ is love, and love came into my house, into my life when Christ came into my life. But for all those years, I was three months off turning 50. I've been a Christian four and a half years. There was no love. My heart was so cold and hard. Um, but the greatest thing about my mum, there was a lot of things. Um, she's been dead 29 years this year, December the 20th. But the greatest thing about my mum was she was a Christian. She was a Christian. And she prayed every day for me. And she told me every day, I pray for you something. Every day. She never missed a day. She prayed every day for me. You know, I've died three times clinically, and I'm still here. Clinically, three times. I know I'm only standing here because my mother's prayers were answered. I truly tell you now, I am only standing here because my mother's prayers were answered. She never got to see me change. She never got to see my life change. We all want to see things happen straight away. She never got to. But the seeds were planted, and the Lord had heard her, and he has me here for today. Praying, Mum. You know, the toughest thing for me was I was eight. And um, I have mental health issues. Um, I have five. There's probably more, but the five that I've diagnosed me with. I have ADHD, dyslexia, um, Asperger's, OCD, and I'm bipolar. And I often say I've got Tourette's because I've got a filthy mouth and I'm doing my best to not swear in this church. And... Um, because I mean 50 years of where I've been that's our language and you don't get rid of that that quick believe me and I don't even care about it to be honest but I care enough about you that I don't want to come in here speaking like that and I am in the Lord's house and if it does slip out don't panic you won't melt <laughs> okay um, and I'm not the only person that's sworn in this church either am I 
but anyhow, I wrote here, hate was born the day my father shot my dog. See, I couldn't behave like oh, people expected me. I couldn't read. I learned how to read in prison at 25. My father was a, he was a psychologist. He was a clinical psychologist. He was a clever man. But he was how he was, and I've just told you how he was, my father was. But there's a big expectation that I was supposed to be this, that, one thing, another, and I was never going to be. I was classified as dumb. I wasn't in any of my classes, and I had no friends. None. Nothing. Because I was out the gate. I was a kid out, so I'd run around, not wanting to come into the class and kick around the rugby ball. And then going swimming when we weren't supposed to be going swimming and going down to the shop when you weren't allowed out of school and all this kind of stuff, because I just couldn't sit still. And they didn't... I was punished all the time about it. And when I'd get home, my father would try and make me read and do all this stuff. I might as well been written in Chinese for all I care. But it didn't make any sense to me. And I'd been misbehaving. I don't think I was a bad kid at all. I, I just think um, I wasn't in a great environment to where they could have grown me properly. And my father was so angry at me, he took me outside and shot my dog in front of me. And it was my puppy. And... Um, that really affects me still when I think about it. But the sad thing is that day was a day pure hate was born in my heart. From that day onwards, I changed. I never was the same. I truly had hate and rage in my heart. And it never left till I just about turned 50. I left home at 14. I couldn't stand being in school any longer. The last school I went to was Middleton Grange, believe it or not. Because I'm from Christchurch. And I hated that school. And I truly hated Christians. And I hated Christians because they were punishing me all the time. I didn't see a lot of love there. By the teachers, by the principal. There was a couple of good teachers there. Mr Moore, he was the art teacher. He was a good man. Ralph Webster, he was the PE teacher. I played in the first movement. He was a good man. The rest of them couldn't stand them. hope none of you are teachers or anything like that. Middle of the range, eh? <laughs> Lucky for you too, I'll give you a hiding out in the car park later. No, I'm just kidding. I've changed, I told you. But I hated Christians. Because I heard all the stuff that they preached about how much we love and all this. Well, I didn't see love there. There's no love there. Not to me. Like I said, I was difficult. But I left there. And I was 14 years old. And I had to leave the house too because I couldn't stand being in the house with my father anymore. And when I left the house, there was no more protection. I was battered at home. And when I left the house, I was sexually abused because I was on the streets then. And ended up with a job, and I had to get a job to pay my rent because I had nowhere to live. And I got a job in a shearing gang, and then I was sexually abused. And I swore my life was going to kill that person. My whole life. Because I had to stay there to get the job, to get the money so I could live, have something to live. So it was just one big ugly mess. Leaving home, school, being sexually abused. I lived in another town called Palmerston North. We moved from where I was moved when all the stuff went wrong up north. Went to Palmerston North and I was sexually abused again. I was 10 years old by an older boy. He sexually abused a whole lot of us. I started running away then. I started running away from home because it wasn't safe here. It wasn't safe at the school. There was nowhere to be safe. Funny thing is I used to go down to the airport and I used to sit there watching planes take off. I wish I was on one. And this one particular day, I went right down to the end of the plane, the end of the airport, and at the end there, there was this old DC-3. 
And she used to sit there. And I used to climb up in there. And I'd sit there for days. I didn't want to leave. I had no food, no blankets, no nothing. I'd just sit there. And I wouldn't go home. People would all be out looking for you. Cots would be looking for you. I was missing kid all the time. When they did get me, when I did get home, eventually they ended up getting rid of me and they put me in a boy's home. You already know how that went. Boys home then. Foster homes, boys home, foster homes, youth prison, prison. And eventually to a rehab. Because I end up with addictions. There's addiction now because I run programs. What I do now, I run programs all over this country on trauma, addiction, depression, anxiety, relationships, and grief. And that's just some of the subjects. And I'm, I'm speaking on where I've been and what got me out of it. But I ended up with addictions to hard drugs. Heroin was my first drug at 16. I loved heroin. It was the first time my mind was free. It was the first time I didn't feel like I suffered. It was the first time I felt like I was okay. And I knew what I was doing was going to end up bad for me. I knew I was going to end up with an addiction. And I didn't care because of how I felt. It's called self-medicating. And the more heroin I had, the better I felt. The guy I was speaking to yesterday at the conference, he said, I was here an addict too, Lucky. I says, I love that drug. He says, me too. He goes, because it saved me all this pain. And that's why people take it. Whether it's that, alcohol, whatever it is, it's, it's self-medicating. Because our, our minds have to medicate ourselves some way to make us feel good. Oh, okay. So you'll turn to whatever it is. Um, thank goodness it wasn't cleaning. It kind of almost became cleaning because I was a cleaner in the prison once, but... I didn't get addicted to it. Um, alcohol was another thing that I really loved. I used to love mixing them together because I, I thought the more of these things that make me feel good, the better it's going to be for me. So I, I had all these addictions. Uh, so I had heroin, I had prescription pills, I had alcohol. But I also had sex because sex makes you feel good. We all know that. So then I threw that in. Well, that became chasing women all the time too. So it was a whole, it was a whole mess. It was just a big concoction. But my number one, my number one favourite addiction was violence. Was violence. And um, I used to run a club here in this city, and it was a gang from the prison. And I was the number one. But I gave it to my bro, one of my mates. He became number one. Because there wasn't enough action as number one for me. And I did stuff to people that would make your hair curl. And, um, and I love the violence, and extreme violence, extreme violence. I've cut people's fi- all of their fingers off. Been a part of two murders. Go into sleep, not a problem. Couldn't care less. And the more I could hurt people, the better I felt. And there's a saying that says, hurt people hurt people. I was a product of it. I was paying it forward. And and I and I loved it and I and I and I it was it was I just couldn't hurt people enough. And that's why I was so extreme. You know, I got to the point that I wanted to start setting people on fire. Because I knew how bad that would hurt. That's the point I got to. And that wasn't that was just before I became a Christian. It was six months before I became a Christian. That's the point I was still at. Ugly, isn't it? Suicidal, from 7 to 49 until my life changed. Do you know that my mother being a Christian, she taught me how, she told me about her God, and that God's there for us. 
And then if we get on our knees and we pray to God to hear to answer our prayers, and it'll be done. You know, that day when my mother taught me this, I couldn't wait for her to leave my room. Because as soon as she left my room, I, I got on my knees at the end of my bed, because that's where we had to, apparently. You see all those old pictures, that's where you all go. Doesn't work if you're not there on your knees at the end of your bed. I was at the end of my bed, my mum gone out the house, out the door, room. And I said, listen, God, if you're real, please take my life now. I don't want to live like this anymore. I can't live like this. It never happened. Instantly I thought, God's lies. He's not real. It's not true. My mum's lied to me. See, the thing is, it wasn't be the first time my mother had lied. Because when she'd have to take me to the hospital, I'd fallen off my bike. I'd been hit by something. I fell off the roof. All these bones broken, all this stuff. And I was sitting there thinking, but that's not true, mum. You're not telling the truth. And I'd be angry and I'd get out of that hospital and I'd say to my mum, you didn't tell them the truth, mum. She goes, son, do you want to live on your own? Do you want to be taken away from me? Do you want your father gone? Yes, I do. I can't have your father gone. Well, I have no money. There's no, there was no benefit then. There was nothing. We're gonna, you'll, I'll lose you and your sister and your brother. So I just have to listen to these lies. Part of my Asperger's is I can't lie. I was in court once in Christchurch here and I started telling the judge the truth. He looked at me and says, I tell you what, if you keep telling me this, I'm going to double your sentence. He says, you're either the most honest person I've ever had in this court or the dumbest. What is it? I said, well, obviously I'd like to be on the most honest. And he did double my sentence. But I told the truth. And that's what meant everything to me. Because I've been watching and listening to these lies before. And I didn't like it. So I was suicidal from seven right up until my life changed. Three months off turning 50. It was ridiculous. You know, the funny thing is, my life went to an extreme when my mother passed away 29 years ago. It was the hardest thing for me at the time. Losing my mother, the only person that loved me. See, I knew I was unlovable. And losing her meant that was gone. And I really didn't want to lose that. I said yesterday at the conference was, being in the hospital, I used to like being in the hospital because the nurses would come and touch you, and they'd tuck you in, and they made sure you're okay, and you felt safe, and there was food. And, you know, they cared about you. But there was that touch. That meant a lot to me. You try not being touched. You try going without being touched. Especially at that age, when you're craving it. Tell you what, it was tough. I used to love being there. I didn't even want to get out. I just wanted to stay in the hospital. Crazy stuff, I tell you. When my mum passed away, it was the toughest thing for me. Because not long before my mother passed away, I was in prison and my son died. He got hit by a car and he was killed. He was four years old. I wasn't allowed to go to his funeral. I wasn't allowed out of the prison. Oh, it's a bit of a handful in prison, as I was telling you. My mother passed away, and I took some blame for her dying. She died of stomach cancer because she was a Christian, and all the Christians turned up every day to pray with her, and they all held hands. And he said, hey, come on, sit in the circle and hold your hands. I only sit in it to please my mum. And I knew they all meant what they were saying, but I didn't. 
I don't believe what they're saying. I felt like I was a kink in the chain, that the flow couldn't go past me, it couldn't go through me. And, and I was blocking it. And, I, and I, when she passed away, the, the thing is, I right up until her last breath, I believed her God was going to save her. Because she believed in him so much that I believed in her, her believing in him. And right till her last breath, I actually thought she was going to, some miracle was coming for her. Because how she had always thought and talked about her God. To her last breath. But she died. And I went another level again. When I didn't think I'd go any further this way wrong. But I had a partner and she was pregnant. And we were having twins. 13 months later, and they died. Um, and one was called Million, the other was called Hope. And do you know when that happened? Because they said they're going to die because their lungs. And they said, you can pick one and we'll put it into an incubator. But the other one, we'll just have to go. You pick one. I wasn't picking one. I didn't know this God, but I knew it wasn't my job to pick anything. And I said, I can't do that. So later, they died, one after the other. And I was actually begging God, the God I didn't know. I was actually begging him, saying, please don't take me. But he did. That was when I got to this point was, this is enough. I've had enough. I came back home from the funeral, took my daughters up. They came back home from the funeral. Went to my house, got rid of my girlfriend, don't be around me no more. Told all my closest mates. I've been with them from the boys' home right through all this time. Don't come around anymore. anymore. They knew what I was like. I said, nobody's safe around me. Keep away. Everybody keep away. I isolated myself and I went down to the bottle store and I got a bottle of Jameson's whiskey. I had to because I was Irish. And I bought a brand new standing off and said, that's it. I'm taking my life today. I got on the bus, bus back to my house. I couldn't wait to get back to my house. I was a drug dealer. Every gang in this in this city bought drugs off me every single one of them that was my job I've been doing that since I was 11 years old I was running the drugs not with the gangs you know I started off at the Lincoln University actually with the students but then I got grew up and grew up and, and I ran the whole of the drugs thing here with this group that I'm with that I left when we moved to Kaikoura and I, my life changed that was me that was my thing and enforcing that but I got on this bus because I couldn't even think straight to drive. At the time, I had a five-bedroom house, a tennis court, an in-ground pool, and everything you could think of right on the beach. I was making huge money, but it meant nothing. And I got on the bus and I got back to my house. Funny thing is, where I lived, there was a lot of solo mums here, and they were all struggling, like my mum did. We didn't always eat. We, well, my father drank all the money. Sometimes we just have doughboys. Flour and water, cooked in water, with salt. Some days that's what we'd have, or just potatoes. But I said to these, these mothers, if you ever need food, come to my house. Go in through the garage door, help yourself. I had these big chest freezers and had this cupboard in this pantry just full of everything you can think of. Anything you needed was all in there. My wife already knows. She tries to limit my shopping still. But when you had nothing, you overcompensate later on in life. Now I've got everything and everything. It's ridiculous. I'm trying to break it. My wife's trying to help me. We've got a, we've got a freezer this big. 
I used to have double chest freezers, huge ones, full of everything you can think of. And I said to these girls, if you ever need food for your kids, come around to my house, help yourself, just take whatever you need. Don't ever let them be hungry. But I started drinking my whiskey, and I knew that when I finished this bottle of whiskey, that it was all over. There was no more suffering, there was no more pain. There was no more punishment. It was all finished. I couldn't change things. I didn't know how to change it. I had this thing on my shoulder saying, you're no good. This is how your life's going to be. It's going to be easier to take your life. It's going to finish. There's no more suffering. This is what I heard, getting whispered into my ears all the time. And I agreed in the end. So I started drinking my whiskey. And I knew as soon as I got to the bottom of whiskey, I was going to cut my wrist. And I got to the bottom of whiskey, and I pulled out my standing knife. And I made two cuts up here. And I got two of my arteries. And as soon as I seen the blood start coming out, I started pumping my hand, because I wanted it to end quicker. Because I'd been suffering long enough. And I started pumping my hand, and I watched it squirting out, and I was thinking, good, I've done it properly. You know what, until I started watching it go from squirting out to just dribbling down my arm. When that happened, I was gone. And the last thing I heard was, this is the right thing. You're doing the right thing. End it now. And then I couldn't believe it, but heaven was a public hospital here in Christchurch because I woke up and I couldn't believe it. I was so angry. I was so wild because I was still here. Well, I hate it. And I had these things pumping into me. I was, so I tried to get up out of the bed straight away and I collapsed on the floor and fainted because I didn't, I didn't have enough blood in me. I died on the way to hospital. They had to revive me on the way to hospital. But how did I end up there? One of these ladies come to get food for her kids. Turned up to my house. Walked in, seen me lying on the ground with bloody breath, rung the ambulance straight away. It's one of them. Somebody that I'd been loving. Trying to love sent by my mother, by one of the angels, by the Lord. I couldn't believe it. I was so gutted, I was devastated. They got me back onto the bridge, they strapped me down to it, started putting this blood in it, and says, you can't go to it, I've got enough blood in you, if you want to kill yourself after that, go do it. But right now you have to stay here. And I had to stay. I got up, I left, and I felt ashamed. Because what's you really going to think of me? How's everyone going to look at me? I'm weak. Coward. Can't cope. Can't deal with stuff. What a shame you are. This is all the stuff that was coming into my head. I never told anybody. I told nobody. First person I told was my partner, my wife. 20 years later. It's one of the first things I told her. Told her all of my stuff. Everything I've told you and more, I shared the whole lot to her. Everything. See, all my girlfriends before all prostitutes or strippers. I don't even have to care about that. One of the greatest love stories in the Bible is a prostitute. Has she loved Christ? But they were the only people that could fit into my life because my, my life was such a mess. Nobody else good was going to come along. Is everybody all right? I'm not. My mum always talked about forgiveness. She said it was a key for my life going forward. Forgiveness made no sense to me at all. Forgiving people that had harmed me, forgiving people that had come against me, made no sense. 
You know, the world says revenge. Get them back. And all that stuff. That's what That was my heart. Get them back. Pay them back. She said it would set me free. So I'll tell you about my dad. My dad's been dead seven years now. He died of cancer too. Uh, eight weeks before my father passed away. On my heart, what my mother said to me was kind of stuck in my brain. I hadn't seen my father since my mother, well before my mother had passed away. I seen him at the funeral, he didn't even talk to us. I didn't care. And anyway, what my mother had said to me about this forgiveness thing for some reason was in my brain. And I thought, heck. One day it came on me real strong, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to forgive him. So I rang him up. I rang my sister. Didn't even know where my father lived. Rang him up. Rang my sister. Got his number and rang him up. He answered the phone. The last time I'd spoken to my father, he changed the number because I told him I was coming up to kill him. I was going to kill him in the middle of the night, him and his wife. And uh, it wasn't that long before I went up to forgive him. And anyway, I got there. I rang him and my father answered the phone. And he says, uh, hello. I says, hey, Pop. It's me here. So I what do you want? I said, well, funny enough, I need to see you. He goes, about what? I said, I'll tell you when I see you. I said, I'm not coming to kill you or anything like that. I just need to see you. Where are you? He goes, I'm in Auckland. My father lived in Browns Bay. I said, right, I'll be up there tomorrow. So I booked a flight, jumped on a plane, flew up there, got a rental car and went to see my dad. So the door, he said, I'll come in. So I went in and he said, well, what do you want to talk about? I said, oh, I'm not ready to talk about it just yet. I'll tell you in the morning. So we sat down. He says, well, how's things been going? My father was a clinical psychologist. He was a clinical psychologist at Papara Prison. Funny enough, I spent most of my life there. Because he put me there, to be honest. How's your life been? So I told him about all my life. I told him about all these tattoos I'm covered with. What they all meant. I'm trying to be a trendsetter like the kids nowadays with all this crap on them. These come from a real place where prison, where tattoos came from. They all got a story, a real story, every one of them. So I told him about them all. It's the first time I've ever sat there with my father had to talk to them. I've never talked with them before. He said, that's interesting, son. I said, yeah. I said, listen, I've got to go to bed. I went to bed because I was dreading talking to him. I, I was really struggling with it. Do you know what? My father woke me up in the morning because he couldn't wait either. He woke up, coming to this room, and he shook me and said, hey, what did you want to say? I said, well, I'll just get up. So I, I got up. And he said, what did, you, what did you come for? I said, well, actually, I've come to forgive you. He looked at me and said, pardon? See, my father had become a Christian. day I left, not long after I left home at 14, he'd become a Christian. I knew he'd become a Christian because I heard about it and I hated him even more. And I hated Christians even more. Because what a bunch of hypocrites. So you better make sure how, you're, how you look to others out there. Because they are looking at you and they are going to judge you. And you could be the only light that they see as a Christian. You better be a good light. Because remember who you're representing. 
That's right, yeah. Can't forgive me. I said, yeah. I said, so you're forgiven. From here on forwards, it's done with. There's no more. Nothing going back. It's from here forward. See how we go. I said, I appreciate that, son. I said, yeah. I said, anyway, I've got to go now. I've done it. Walked out, jumped in the car, drove home, jumped in the plane, got home for Shit, that was lucky. I still wanted to kill him, to be honest. But I'd done what I'd wanted to do. You know that two weeks later, my father rang me up and said, I said, listen, son, I've got cancer. I said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah. He said, um, it's not looking good. I said, okay. I was wondering why he was telling me. It was kind of like a prayer of mine answered. You can imagine, eh? He had, a, he had these golden children, you see. My brother and my sister. They were the golden ones. They were the clever ones. They were the ones that everywhere. They didn't have any mental issues like me. They were all, they were perfect. What are you ringing me for? Oh, I thought I'd better tell you. Is he okay? I said, um, oh, well, what's happening? He says, well, they're going to come and see me. I'm probably going to have to go into a hospice. I said, okay. Well, I'll come up. So I hopped on the plane the next day and I flew up there. Six weeks it took for my father to die and I stayed in the hospice with him. Flew his golden daughter and his golden son over from Aussie because they left. Flew them over twice. They wouldn't have come otherwise. See, not only was I a drug dealer, but I also had a big concrete business in the town. And I was making thousands every day, 10 grand plus a day. So I had tons of money. It was ridiculous what I had. Flew them over. You know, my brother came over, yet my brother was the one I babysitted because my mother was out running around with my father. She had to drive my father. She didn't drink my mother. But she had to drive him because she made him. He made her. So when he was newborn, I was the one that had to stay at home looking after this baby. I was seven years old. I never looked after a baby before. They'd go away. They wouldn't, there was no cell phones there. There was nobody there to come and help you. You know, I used to walk around in circles, like this holding my brother, just walk around in circles talking to myself because I was scared. And talking to myself made me feel like I had some company in the house. My sister wouldn't stay at home. She'd bugger off to her friends because she had friends. I didn't have any. I got friends when I went to boys' home at 14 because I realised all those kids in there were just like me. And they loved me because they understood me. You wonder why people go into the gangs? There you go. Because they're not loved. I got into that boys' home and I was loved. I had my first birthday cake in there with kids there at my birthday. Nobody came to my house. No kids. It was there. Where how else was it ever going to be? How do you think people get into gangs? It's because of this. Because people don't want to love people that ain't like you. So yeah. I threw my brother in that over. You know, my mother sometimes wouldn't turn up to pick me up from school. I'd be stuck there staying out at school. Six, seven, eight, nine years of age. Where we lived, there was nobody around. I know a lady came past one day, walking past the school, picked me up, took me home. I started, started calling her Nana. She used to start coming down to the school looking for me, make sure I wasn't left behind. My sister said, don't wait. Just bug her off. I'm going to stay at somebody else's house. She'd be gone. I'll be standing there. I used to wait, hoping that my mother would turn up. I lived miles away from the school, 30 miles plus. So I had abandonment issues. I had all this stuff. And yet the golden children, they got everything. 
wouldn't turn up. So my dad, I said to him, right, today I got this, he said, what's happening? He says, the doctor's coming today, they're going to take me to the hospice. I said, sweet. Doctor turned up, yep, Colin, you're going to have to go to the hospice. Okay. I said, well, that's it, pop, jump in the car, I'll drive you down there, get all your stuff. I took my father to the hospice, and I says, what, this is how it is. He got into his bed, I won't leave you till you died. When you're dead, I'll leave. But before I leave, I'll do your funeral, make your headstone, and I'll come home. I will not leave your bed. Do you know I've got another bed put at the side, bottom of my father's bed? And I stayed there for six weeks. Rubbing ice around his mouth when he couldn't, when his mouth was all dry, making sure he had his medication. Put him in the shower. All of you that have been through this, you understand. Put him in the shower, shower him, dry him, toilet him, all this stuff. I was praying that his favourite daughter would get back and start doing this so I didn't have to because I was uncomfortable. You know, sometimes it's not comfortable to love somebody, eh? I was so uncomfortable having to do this for my father that I didn't even love. Who had only two weeks beforehand forgiven him. So I did all this. And the golden children came when I paid for them to come. This is hacking on them, but this is where their hearts were. My father loved the sea. He loved it. He loved swimming. Do you know I said to him one day, I said, hey, Pop, Sitting in the bed, I says, um, is there anything you'd like to do? He goes, I'd love to go for a swim at the beach. I said, right, I don't know if that's possible, but we'll do it. I lifted him out the window from where his room was. <laughs> Went around and got the car, picked him up, put him in the car, drove him down to the beach at Mission Bay in Auckland. Got him out the be- out of the car, had towels. Unfortunately, my father wore nappies. Me and my dad walking down the beach, he was in nappies. I'm taking him for a swim. And all these people are looking at me thinking, this is weird. There was a married guy covered in tattoos with that old white guy in nappies. Don't look right, does it? I knew what they were thinking. I didn't really care. I was past caring. I don't care what people think of me. I really couldn't care less. I already had that beaten out of me well before that. So I'm holding my dad's hand. We'll walk him into the sea, get him in the sea, and then I'd have to carry him out because he'd get wet. I took him down three times over that time before he passed away. And I watched him, how happy he was to be in that water again because he knew that was the end. I remember his last beer too. I never had a beer with my father. We weren't father and son. We were trying to build a relationship that had been broken for so long in a small period of time. During that time, my father told me about his father and how it was for him. It was like mine. Mine was worse because it got worse every, every generation. And it was my father and my grandfather. Then it was my great-grandfather and my grandfather. And it went back. And it went way back. Way back. And it started well before it got to me. And every time it came another generation, it was even worse till it got to me. However, my father did die. And um, I did his funeral. I'd never done a funeral before. I did his funeral. It was a big funeral too because my father was well known. He was felt well liked. He went to Boys High here in Christchurch. He was captain of the rugby team at Boys High. I also went there. I got kicked out of there about two days <laughs> But my dad went there, and he knew all the rugby. He was a full rugby head. Went to all the rugby games. He was, a, he was also a, um, a personal trainer for a lot of the Can- Canterbury rugby players and the All Blacks. Let's get him up. He was really tied up, and you, know, you know what I'm talking about, that whole syndicate, old boy stuff. That was my dad. And I did his funeral, and I made his headstone. I was true to my word. 
And then I left. Yeah. I came back. And it was real weird about what you're doing in this church, about this cultural night. And I came back to Christchurch, and I thought, things got to change. I don't know how. This is what I am. That's that. And I said to this God that you all know, and I know now, listen here, God. If you're real, give me a partner that wants to help me know you. I need somebody to help me get to know you. If you're real, give me a partner. That isn't how I've been with all this brokenness. There's my prayer sitting right there. Just like that, she'd come into my life. I already met her beforehand, and things started to change. Even when I was up there, I used to ring Haley, say, you know, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. I don't know why, I was real random. Anyway, I came back, and I'd just done this big drug deal in town, in this club. And I come out, and I had about, I don't know, 10 or 15 grand on me. And I was taking her out for tea that night. And usually I'd go to the park or one of the places, and I'd book out or whatever, you know, all this crazy stuff. Park Royal, I used to have a penthouse there for the weekends. And take all me and my mates and just get on. It was all room service and just run them up. But I, I said to her, I'll take you out, I'll pick you up. And I come back from doing this drug deal, and I went off in my car, and there's this flyer on the windscreen. And it was, um, I was the enemy of this church, anyhow. It was a Spraydon Baptist church. <laughs> there you go. And they had this flyer on my windscreen. I looked and I thought, oh, cultural evening dinner tonight. Spraydon Baptist church. Core hard to get in. Shit, I'll go in there. When I picked up my wife, she said, where are we off? I said, I've got a surprise for you. We drove to the Spraydon Baptist Church. I'd never been in a church before in my life. There's something about this note on my car. So I picked her up, turned up at the church. She goes, what are we doing? I said, well, we haven't done her in there. And, you know, you go around the church and every culture has prepared meal. I gave them a thousand bucks. Drug money for my car. I was quite happy to give them the whole lot, but I thought I'll probably freak out and find out who's been in the church and next time I'm getting caught for... 10 grand donation or something, I don't know. Cops in the church, they'll start investigating me, you know, and so a grand will do. Went around the church, had this big munch, and that was great. Dropped Paley off home, so I must do that again sometime. The thing that stood out to me was, I said, Do you mind going to church? She goes, No, I don't mind going to church. Never really been, but I'm happy to. I want to learn. So she said, This was my prayer, what I just said to God. Well, our relationship grew. Over years, it took how long, many years? Five, five or six, maybe even longer, of just friendship. Friendship, getting to know each other. Never slept together, just friendship. I had to do something different, not what I'd always done. Or otherwise, I'm going to get the same result. I couldn't expect a different result if I keep doing the same rubbish. Well, anyway, we got together. Like I say, I, I'm pretty sure Haley was, I was putting Haley's life, I was the strengthen her faith <laughs> um, but I we got together and I said to her I want to get married I've never been married so we got married but I got saved first I said to Haley, I've got to get out of this town out of this city I've been with my club from the time I was 40 I was almost about to turn 50 and I had to change things and I said to her we've got to leave she goes okay where do you want to go I said Kaikoura 
I love hunting, diving, fishing, and surfing. That was a place we used to go to all the time just to get away. So we moved there. After all the earthquakes here, and unfortunately three months before the Kaikoura earthquake, I was making big money because I, was a con- I had a concrete business. You know how much concrete needed in Christchurch, you know? I ended up with 24 workers. We were making massive money. Haley had a business here too. She had a paint and decorating business. She was doing the same. So I said, let's leave here, let's go. I went and seen my club. She said, right, that's, I'm out, I have to leave. I said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to go and find a better way to live. I've been to prison plenty of times for my club and the guys in my club and serving my club. I was loyal. I was a solid soldier for them. There was no, no flaws in me like that because that was my whole life. But I knew that wasn't the life that there must got to be better. So we left. Got a house up there. It just been, it just been, the day we moved in, the carpet had just been put down the day before. It was all brand new. And anyway, this is when the, I walked through the valley and the Lord came and grabbed me out of the valley of death. I've been camped in that valley of death for 49 years and the Lord called me there. And Haley and I moved in and we're having a wonderful time. Fishing, diving, surfing, all the lovely stuff. Stuff Had a boat, had everything. It was great. I was retired. Work was finished for me. I wasn't even 50. That was me done. There's no more work. I was finished. So I just got to do the lawns, the garden, all this stuff. But then there's this guy who I call now call the stalker. His name's Brian O'Connor. He was the pastor for the Kaikoura New Life Church. And I knew Brian through surfing and through his boys, but only just. And I knew he was a righteous man. I knew he was a Christian man, but I didn't know he was a pastor. Anyway, this guy came up to me in Haiti. We were just coming out of the New World, and it was a Friday night, Friday afternoon, and I just wanted to bought all this booze to get drunk for the weekend. And when we loaded up my car and we're just driving out, he came rushing over. And I stopped my car, put my window down. He says, hey, Lucky, what are you doing tomorrow? I says, well, uh, I'm not sure why. He goes, why don't you come to church? My window was down, he had his face in here, and I'm looking at him thinking, what? Why don't you come to church? I really wanted to say F off. And I told you I can't lie. So I kind of just lifted my head up like this. And I was trying to think of a lie and wanting a lie to come out. Or him just to walk away. And it was getting uncomfortable because he'd been sitting there for a while. He goes, what do you think? And I go, yeah, okay. <laughs> he goes, it starts at 10, I'll see you at 10. I said, yeah, okay. And he walked off. And I just looked at Haley, and the first thing she said to me, and don't judge my wife for this, but I did. <laughs> she said to me, we're not going, surely. I says, yes, we are. I just gave that man my word. See, when you lose everything and you've been through the prison system like us, the only thing you have is your word. So it means everything. And that's a good thing because that's in alignment with God of having integrity. See, a lot of people in Christianity and in the church say stuff and they don't do it. Their word isn't solid because you've never been tested. That's the problem. But in the prison, when somebody says something to you and you say you're going to be there, you better be there because lives count on it. So I said, no, I'll be there. Couldn't wait to get home, get drunk. Got home, got drunk. So I was spraying it back, dreading going to church with all the Christians. You're, you're a fearful bunch. 
who we want to do is drink coffee and hug. <laughs> Told you I didn't like being touched. They hadn't been touched, and then I knew I was going to come to church, and everybody wants to drink coffee and hug. Well, that's one thing I know about Christians. All I had to describe is that's what I'd say to an alien. They just hug and drink coffee. That's why you're all laughing. You all know it. It's true. Anyway, Sunday came, got in the car, drove down to church. I knew this was going to be painful. So I drove my car, pointed it facing home, walked in, heard all the ugly music. Well, I ain't going in there. Listen to that ugly rubbish. Hated the music. Could hear them all singing out of key. I ain't going in there. Waited for it to finish. Said to my wife, come on, let's go and we'll sit right at the back. Sat right at the back. Everything went on and said to my wife, right, that's it. As soon as they say they're going to do one more song, whatever, we're out, because they're all going to go and grab us. As soon as it finished, they said, right, one more song, we're going to have one more song and then we're going to go and have some fellowship and cups of tea and that. And as soon as they started singing, I said, right, let's get, and we're gone. Got out of there. Jumped in my car, just drove straight home, got drunk. Unfortunately, quite caused a small town. was doing my stuff, come the Saturday, bang into the stalker. <laughs> he said, hey, Lucky, how was church? I told you I'm truthful, eh? I was like, oh. He's looking at me, he goes, well, how was it? I really didn't want to say to him because I knew it was going to crush him. He goes, how was it? Oh, I didn't like it. I want it. Well, I hated, hated the music, hated, didn't even know what you were talking about, mate. Just hated the whole thing. What a, that's horrible. He goes, really? That's no good. How about you come tomorrow? <laughs> I just looked at him and thought that should have been enough to, for him to kind of cotton on to. I didn't like the job. I just looked up and said, oh, I had nothing to do. I was, had no reply. And I just out of my mouth squeaked, yes. <laughs> and he goes, great, I'll see you there. I looked at my wife, she goes, you're joking. I says, we've got to. Got home, got drunk, really drunk this time. Drive down to church, face my car, facing home. Waited for all the ugly music to finish properly this time. Walked in, there's somebody sitting right at the back, so we grabbed more chairs off the back and sat back, back. Same thing. Didn't understand one word, nothing, absolutely nothing. So then he got up and said, Well, we'll do one more song, we're going to fellowship. Wait for them all to start singing, What, we've gone out, jumped in the car. I knew they were all itching to get me. Well, anyway, got home, thought, That's it. This is horrible. The following week, same thing. Like I said, it's a small town, it's only got two bloody streets. Chance of bumping into him pretty high. <laughs> Caught again. Same rigmarole. Exactly the same. After that church service, I said to my wife, that's it. We've got to come up with a plan. I ain't going back to this church rubbish. We're going to bang into them all the time. The only way we can get by this is you're going to have to lie. <laughs> I can't do it. It's your job now. Next time he pops up, you just say, well, sorry, Brian, we've actually got stuff on. And I said, here we gone. That's our plan. Great. We ain't going back to that church. The sad thing is, 
I had to go into town. Haley and I were coming to Christchurch and um, to sort out our businesses and that because we used to come back every couple of weeks. We're coming back on a Thursday and we're going to be here Thursday and then drive back on Saturday. Came down. But before I came down, I had to go into town, pick up some stuff. So I head into town. I'm walking down the street and I was looking around. I was really careful. I used to walk around looking for him like this. I was like, I almost was tiptoeing through town. It looked real weird. And I was like this. I just kind of creep along town. And out of this shop pop Brian when I'm creeping down the main street. He jumps and goes, oh, lucky. I wanted to see you. I said, oh, yeah. Because how was church? I said, listen, mate, I'm, I wasn't even holding back. I'd had enough of this, man. Said, listen, mate, it was crap. I hated it. I hate the music. I don't know what you're doing. I can't even understand what you're talking about, mate. He goes, that's not good. And all I could think of was, shit, I've got no wife. <laughs> he goes, well, look, come back this Sunday. Why don't you come back this Sunday? And all I could think of was, oh, my bloody wife. I said, you Okay. I had to, I'm telling you. I was just gutted. I was almost destroyed for it. And I, and I drove home. I walked in the house because I was so angry. And I says, look, Haley, it's bloody your fault. We're going back to bloody church. You can't leave me like this. If we're going to town, we've got to go on piers. You know he's stalking around looking for me. That's all he's doing. We've got to go together. I said, we're going on bloody Sunday now. We were both pissed off. I'm not even kidding. I know it sounds funny, but we were pissed off. Drive into Kaikoura. We drive to Christchurch, do our business, and drive back to Kaikoura. The sad thing I still wanted. I'm, I was a wanted man for some stuff, earlier stuff. And we drive back to Kaikoura after doing our business. It was a Saturday. And I've seen these flashing lights, these cop lights. See, what they've been doing was pulling me over regularly, the cops, because I'm a person of interest, obviously. I'm registered as dangerous. And I moved into the small town and all the cops are pulling me over except one. Regularly pulling me over and I was getting sick of it. Really sick of it. Because I was trying to change. I just want to be left alone. This is the poor me bit. Anyway, i seen this flashing lights coming. We're driving back to Kaikoura and I thought, they're after me. So I pulled straight into this farm. And the flashing lights pulled into the farm too. And I hopped out. And this cop gets out of the car and goes, hey, Lucky. I said, hey, mate. He goes, what are you doing? I says, I was trying to hide from you, to be honest. He goes, yeah, I thought so. He said, um, I'm going to have to arrest you. I said, yep. He goes, I'll tell you something, though. He goes, why don't you just drive your wife home, then um, I'll follow you, and I'll take you down the station, I'll process you, and drop you home. I've never been treated like that by the police. I've got a history. I've got a history that'd be the length of the street. My criminal history. Robbed my first shot when I was 11. And I said, what's up with this guy? There was something different. So I hopped in my car and he followed me home and I dropped my wife off. I said, I'll be back when he drops me back. And I've taught me and processed me. Taught me home. But you know, the whole time I was thinking, this is different. There's something weird here. I've never been treated like this, there's, but there's something about this guy. I said to my wife, there's something about this cop. There's something different about it. She goes, what? I says, well, I don't know. See, the thing is, you're all different. 
than the rest of the people in the world that aren't saved. There's supposed to be a difference. This is what I realise now. You're supposed to carry something different. And he did, because it's supposed to be evident that you are separated from the world, and it's how you come across to people. And this guy was different. Anyway, he dropped me off. Went in, started drinking. I had to, at church. Started power drinking, throwing it back. I was loving this stuff. Then I started fessing about the police coming back into my life and being a pain. Started thinking about all the cops that had been pulling me over right up to this point. Started thinking about him. Then I started hating on him. And it's those whispers that we get. And I was making a plan to get this cop. Not the one, that one, but the one that lived around the corner from me who'd been a real pain to me. He was real painful. I was making this plan for him. Which would have put me in prison for the rest of my life. I'm telling you now. And my wife got up and said, what are you doing? I said, I'll just... So I told her. She goes, you know, none of that's happening. Get to bed. It's time to finish. So what do you mean? She goes, no, it's not happening. Go to bed. I moaned a bit and went to bed. Went to bed, got up in the morning. She goes, right, let's go to church. Get up. Off we go. She's driving because I was still half drunk. I'm in the passenger seat, and the cop that lived around the corner that was making a plan to attack was sitting in his cop car when we were driving past him. So I was in the passenger seat, so I thought I'd wave to him. So I waved out to him, down past, and he just looked at me, and nothing. My wife starts blowing me up. What are you doing that for? Why are you doing that? Because I hate him, that's why. Give him a reason to come pull me over and smash him over. She's none of that. We're on our way from church. He's only 100 metres from the church. Walked into the church, pointed our car facing home, waited for the ugly music to finish, sat right at the back, I'm sitting there. And then lo and behold, the cop that pulled me over that day, the day before, walked into the church. And he looked at me, and he looked at me, got a fright, hell of a fright. Well, I got a hell of a fright too. <laughs> but now they're attacking me in the church. I thought I was supposed to be safe. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he just put his head down like this. And he had his wife and four little kids behind him. And they just walked up to the front, sat on the second row, and just sat down. And he just kept his head down the whole time. I said to my wife, I've got to go see him. She goes, not now you ain't. I said, well, I have to. I have to go see him. And they started doing the worship because the notice has just come up. And they started doing worship. I said, no, I actually have to go see him. She goes, you're not fighting in this church. See, I've fought all over the place. I couldn't care less. Well, I've fought at funerals and everything. All kinds of stuff. Couldn't care less. If you've got to do the job, just get it done. Don't care about it anyway. Think, don't care about consequences. I'll stab people in front of the screws in the prison. Make no difference. I said, no, I don't, I don't want to fight him. I just got to speak to him. The worship's going on, and I'm sitting there all flustered, and he's just sitting on a seat with his head down. And I couldn't stop looking at him. And then all of a sudden, I, I truly felt like this. I, if I was a vice, I was inside a vice on the front of back of me. And it felt like somebody was doing up this voice on my chest. Honest truth. A massive voice. I've never had a heart attack, but I'm, I started thinking, I'm about to have a heart attack. And I grabbed my wife, I grabbed her hand and go, Hayley, you have to watch me. I think I'm going to die. I think I'm, I'm about to have a heart attack. And if it's not a heart attack, it's a stroke. She goes, why? She says, my chest is 
I, I can't breathe. My, my chest wouldn't go out. It was like being squashed and you had no room to breathe. And I couldn't breathe. And I start panicking because I'm thinking, shit, what's everyone going to think if I die in a church? I can't die in here. That was the first thing. I can't die in here. In my chest, I just sat there. She goes, it's okay, I'm watching it. It's okay. The church service went on, never heard one word. I sat there just holding on to my heart and my chest. And I was suffering. And then this happened. The church service finished. And I jumped up out of my seat. And I walked over to this guy. Went along behind him because I couldn't make up to where he was in front. And I tapped him on the back. Hey, bro. He looked round. And his whole shirt was white. Just wet. He'd just been crying the whole time. And his wife goes, he's been crying the whole time. I said, okay, what's that? And he couldn't even say it. And he just was crying. And he said, hey, Lucky, do you mind if I um, pray for you? Well, I don't know what pray for me was. I said, yeah, sure. He said, well, come up the front. Try to honour a guy that's been just crying like a baby. I've never cried in my life. This guy's sobbing. I'm trying to be friendly to him because he was trying to be friendly to me. So I walk up to the front of the church with him. He goes, you know what, Lucky, do you mind if I get three others? Go for your life. So he goes, gets these other three. So there's four of them. Kind of like, I thought it was looking like a gang bashing, to be honest. <laughs> and I'm standing in the middle. And he says, we're going to pray for you. And they all put their hands on me. And they started praying in a language I've never heard before. I thought, shit, they're trying to speak in trio. <laughs> then I thought, this must be something like Hebrew. I've I, I never heard this. I now know it's tongues. And all has your hands on me. They're praying for me. Praying for me. Asking for forgiveness. You know, the funny thing is, all four of those men were all cops. Every single one of them was a cop who I'd fought with all my life. They knew my history. They knew where I'd been. So the police used to turn up to my house and turn around and leave. Because they'd say, are you all right, Colin? Yeah, everything's in order. Me and my mum been in the house, been smashed over, and they'd leave because they didn't want to interfere. I just overwhelming hate for police. I can't tell you. I could stay here all day and tell you how much I didn't like them, and you'll never understand how much passionately I didn't like them. But I was standing in the middle of four cops praying for me, and instantly my life changed just like that. My hate for police was gone instantly. That cop that was praying for me, the head cop, I stay at his house now. He comes and stays with me. All those cops do. I realised that under that roof, the roof that I stand in, that we were brothers. And that was the first time I've ever felt wanted or felt like I, I felt like I'd just got home. I've never had a home before. The first time I really felt like I belonged somewhere that wasn't a gang or a prison. It's the very first time in my life that I felt loved in there. My life changed that day. Instantly, just like that, gone. All this stuff, suicidal thoughts, gone. My anxiety, it's gone. Depression, gone. All this stuff was gone that day. Every single thing. All this grief that I've been carrying around, gone. Every single thing. He restored me how he wanted me. But he told me, I gave you a new heart. The pain on your chest was a new heart. I give you a new heart. That was the very first time I felt for people. And I had empathy, because I'd never had that. I started feeling for people's pains and sufferings. 
So I walk in that now all the time. This is what I do. I listen to people's pain and suffering every day. And it changed me. And I'm thankful and I'm truly blessed because God thought I was worthy enough to save and I didn't think I was worthy of anything. Nothing. The funny thing is, a year and a half later, I became a pastor. A pastor for new life. And the week after becoming a pastor, I became a senior pastor. I've never even read the Bible. I can only read what I write because I have an issue with comprehension. It's part of my dyslexia. But I know that the Word of God is the Bible. I have 100% faith in it. I just can't read it. But it's, I get fed other ways. I listen to it all day, all day, all night. I listen to all these spe- people speaking, all these great speakers, and, and people just, and just the Bible. I listen to it. But I've got a fantastic memory, and I remember all this stuff. Because, you know, when you can't read, your memory becomes good. My memory is sharp. And that's the greatest thing about it. But that's God, eh? What He does for us. That's what He did for me. But I became a pastor. Do you know that six months later after that, I've been, been a Christian two years and I spoke at the police conference. They got me there because of how much my life had changed. I was supposed to speak at it last week, but it had been cancelled, the main one. They got me to speak at the police conference. So I met Andrew Costa, head commissioner, Jeremy McSkimming, deputy commissioner, Wally Omaha, deputy commissioner. They come with me to the gangs now, trying to bridge this gap. I work with the gangs to try to get them to change things. So this is a better way to live. There's freedom and peace here through him. Freedom and peace comes into our lives. See, everybody wants to have a full, happy life where there's hope and where your children reach their full potential. I've never met anybody, the worst person in the world, the worst people I know, like the hardest, hardest gang criminals, they still want their children to reach their full potential. We just don't know how to do it. We don't know. You should say, well, get a job. Well, shit, that's going to do a lot. That does nothing. I don't like working. I'm a drug dealer. I have time with my family. Get a job. Jobs fix nothing. So many men now I see shackled to their job. It's an addiction. And their families are suffering for it. Men have been taken out of their families' lives through the job. But it's good to work. I had a business. But don't be telling people that the way to it is getting a job. That's one small step. It's about getting people around them that are going to love them. See, if you want people to jump out of the world I was in, because that should be your goal, you've got to provide somewhere for them to jump to that's safe. They're not just going to walk into this church because they walked in here once and you talked to them. What are you going to give them? What are you going to provide for them? Are you going to provide a brotherhood to them? Are you going to provide a family to them? Don't be providing them some scripture. Don't be providing them some of your wisdom. It's fellowship. It's loving them. It's bringing them in. It's relationship. Forget about all that other rubbish. That's later. If you want to help them. Um, can I have those pictures up quickly, please? And then I'm done. I've cut it short too, by the way. <laughs> That's my church there. Right there. King of Mungamon. Biggest gang in this whole country. This chapter here. That's me on the left in the white with Kingdom. The fellow over here in the black on the right is my brother, D. He's a pastor. He's been here before. He travels with me. That's our church. Because who else is going to go do the church with them? Who else? Well, obviously not you guys. That's okay. But I talk about the coalface. 
God said to me, go to the coal face. Because it's at the coal face that you'll find the diamonds in the coal. Because diamonds come in the coal. You've got to go to the coal face to find your diamonds. Stop sitting in your church polishing the gold that you already have. But go to the coal face. Now, your coal face doesn't look like my coal face. But you better have a coal face. Whether it's your work, your sports, your group, whatever. Have a coal face. Find your diamonds. Don't just come here to sit here warm on a seat. No point. If I had a church, I'd kick everybody out that wasn't at a coal face. I don't have to have them in my church. They'd be gone. These guys, I'm solid with them. Serious. I tell them exactly this. The thing is, they receive it because they don't get offended because they're wanting help. They're so desperate for help. They receive everything you give them. Talking to church, man, I'm sure I've offended a few people. Talked too long, said something, didn't like the place, all this rubbish. These guys, they want to be fed. Because when you've got nothing, when it's looking hopeless, and you turn up as a Christian man or woman, you're walking as you're the walking hope. Because of him. That's my church. I tell them, I do a church service with them every time I'm with them. Been with them four times this year. And every time I go to I go Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I do church Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They ask for it. Tell me about your God, Lucky. Tell me how good your God is. Tell me how he's going to help my kids. Tell me how your God's going to help my wife. Tell me how he's going to help me. So I tell them. My testimony, power of our testimony. Now they know it. Now they want to hear words. They want to hear the scriptures. The last time I preached to them, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the first one I did was, the first one I did was um, the great banquet. And sending out the invitation. And those that came, they came. They sat at the table and feasted on what we prayed into them. The people that should have been there don't turn up. But they turned up. The second day I did, um, it was how the last will become first and the first will become last. Boy, that warmed their hearts. Because these people are now starting to get in the race. That's hope. And the second thing, the third night I talked to them was on um, the father's heart. The father's heart. They're all fathers. All of them have kids. But this father that loves them. Um, next picture, please. There's my other church. That's the other weeks. That's the black power. Where is he? The brother right in the middle here between Jared and um, Luke with a cheesy grin with a great juice on. Standing there like this. His name's H. He's a Christian. He's the president of three chapters, Tokoroa, Whakatani, and um, Rotorua. He comes to my wife's house, one of my wife's house, to fellowship with us. Just to fellowship and talk about God. His wife's a Christian. He asked me, last time he came and stayed, was, what about doing a church for just my club, Lucky? I said, well, I can't do that. I'll do it for your club but others have to be able to be welcome. Because yeah, we can we do it. He wants to do it this November. Just for them. Because lives are starting to change and they see it. So when we turn up, we turn up with Christ. We're not turning up on our own. We turn up with Christ. I go there all the time. I can't wait to go home tomorrow to get on my bike, to go over and be with a mob, Paitua. He's the head man. Every gang in this country, every gang in this country is only here because he allows them to be here. He has three and a half thousand patch members. Biggest gang in this country. Runs every prison. And if they want to get rid of a gang, they just wipe them out. They're gone. They've got plenty of guys that will just go and kill you right now. Couldn't care less and go to prison for 17 years. It means nothing. Because they're soldiers. 
So they're only here because he says. And that man, Arika Paitua, is a Christian. He has the biggest father's heart. Because 340 patch members out are under him, he's their father. He fathers them. Fathers them, their wives, and their kids. 340 of them give $100 a week each. That's $34,000 a week. It's called tithing there. Be good if everybody gave $100 here every week. This is a wake up for you, eh? They do. Only four out of those 360 don't work. And they work at the pad. And that place is spotless. Spotless. Because you have to work. They don't do the drugs. They don't sell any of it. That rule's gone. No more for that club. They're trying to put it in place with all the others. And that Black Power chapter them, they're the same. None. You get caught moving that stuff, selling that stuff, you're going to get the hiding of your life and you're gone. The funny thing is I went to a family thing with them, with the mob, and there's about 140 kids. They had this family day. And when all these kids left, they ran up to Paitua and said, hey, thank you, Paitua. Do you know you knew every one of their names and they all hugged them? Two days later, I was telling a pastor about where I'd been and what had happened. He said, oh, so what? He said, oh, still drug dealers. I said, well, they're not, actually. He said, oh, they'll be out doing crime. I said, well, they won't be, actually, because that's not them. I said, you're the pastor. How many kids come up and thank you on Sunday? How many of them want to hug you? How many, how many hugged you on Sunday? Well, none. Yeah. That should speak clearly enough to you where you stand with him. He knew every kid's name. I couldn't believe it. You should all be back power among them of them. It'll help you grow as Christians. Uh, next picture, bro. There's my church. Her name's Flo. Straight outside the Auckland Casino where everybody goes and throws their money. Walks in there. She's just outside. I pray for her. I pray for all of them down the street. That's my church. Flo. I go along and I took, take my wife, I take all kinds of people and take them along, oh, let's go and pray for the homeless. Let's go love them. Because that's where Christ would be. He wouldn't have sat in here on Sunday. He would have been down, he would have been down Columbus Street looking for the homeless, loving them and blessing them, praying over them, healing them. He wouldn't have come and sat in the church and listen to scripture. We'll see all your hearts here. They're not solid. He'd be down there with a desperate. That's where he is. Your Bible says it. Remember, you read it. But that's our church. Could I have the other picture, please? That's me, my daughter, my wife, and in that pram is my grandson. His real name's, well, his real name's Remy, but I call him Wolfie. He looked like a wolf when he was born. I just call him Wolfie. But Remy in Māori means the lamb. He's the lamb of God. See, our daughter there believes in God. She's a Christian. This testimony had to stop, and it had to stop with me. And when I got saved, my brother, his two boys, my sister, her two girls, and me, and my kids, four girls and a son. My son's the only one that's not in there. But my four daughters all know and love God, and they all pray. That's a testimony. This is a testimony I want to hear, these ones here. Oh, boy, you know, this is my, my grandfather was a Christian, my dad was a Christian, and I'm a Christian, and my boy's going to church, and he's doing this, this, and this in the church. That's a, that's a testimony. That's what I want to hear, because I hear mine all the time. I don't want to hear that anymore. 
the reason why my son's not a Christian is because for him to have it, to have reach his potential in his life, I had to step out because I had nothing good to offer him. He would have been a gang member. He would have been in a boy's home. He would have been in prison because that's what I always thought I wanted for my kid, my boy. He's going to take over this and he's going to run this. I'll help him set up a drug empire and all this rubbish. That's what I wanted him for him. So I took out of, myself out of his life so he could have a chance. And I had to go and ask him to forgive me and say sorry last year. And he was 16. And I seen hate in his eyes. And when I said I'm sorry and I told him what I just told you in depth, I seen love come into his eyes. And my son loves me now. Because before that he used to text me, I hate you. You're no good. You're this, that, FC, FC, F that. He sent it to me and he used to hurt me because I came out of his life to give him a chance. And now I'm trying to get back in there with him. And we're building our relationship now. And it's okay. Um, is there another picture? And there's Wolfie there. You see why I call him Wolfie, eh? You can't actually, but he was real hairy. He was born. I freaked out when I seen him. Better put a hat on him. Well, I didn't like hairy babies because my, my, two, my girls were all bald. They didn't have any hair. They all, their mum wanted to have pigtails on it. They weren't putting pigtails on them until they were about three. They were like this, but just different colour hair. So when I seen him, I freaked out. I was like, what the heck? Oh, Wolfie. I can't wait to get home to see Wolfie. So that's me done. So I hope something that whatever I've said today has touched you in the heart somewhere, no matter what part. But if I want to leave you something, I'll leave you this. Just remember what Christ would look like and whether you could love him. Because if you can't love him, and you can't love these people that you struggle with, you're not loving God. Because God's heart is all about love. There's nothing else in his heart. So anyway, now you can go back and have your roast chicken. <laughs> the married guy with the FTW on his shirt and it went on so long, you can go and now have lunch. This FTW in my world meant F the world, as you probably all knew. And now it means for the world. On there's John 3.16. See, what the devil uses to destroy things, pull things down, God's to turn it around. This is the turning it around for the world. It's what he gave his son for us, for the world. Because that's what everything the devil tries to destroy us with. Even my mental health issues, the devil tried to destroy me. Because believe me, all of my life till I became a Christian, it was a curse having these things on me. I don't take any medication anymore. I'm pretty sure I'm all right, I don't love. No, I don't take any medication anymore right? because I believe in God and trust in him. And he was trying to destroy me, but the, the Lord won't allow that. So we've got to get things back. And like the rainbow too, I've got nothing against gay people, but that is not theirs. We have to claim that back too. That was one of the last promises. That's ours. Not for some community. And I've got nothing against homos and lesbians. Nothing, nothing at all. That's their business. That's between them and him, not me. But that's not their rainbow. It's ours. And, um, and so is us. So you don't have to walk away and go, well, he was had a terrible T-shirt concert and all that. He's not changed. He's not saved. Look at him. Covered in tattoos and that. So, yeah, thought I'd better explain it. But anyway, um, so I'll leave you with that. So God bless you all. Uh, really do pray blessings over you all. I better pray, actually. It is Sunday, eh? <laughs> Whew. It's hot up here. I asked for those lights to be down, and they were down. It's still hot, eh? I should have been standing over here something, maybe. Anyway, thank you, Father, for these people, Lord. Oh, Lord, I ask that something that's been said has penetrated their hearts, Lord. 
that will grow them in some way, shape or form for you. Can we give glory to you, Lord, to take that fear away from whoever's in here struggling, to love their neighbour, Father, to reach out to those that are really struggling, Father, that you'll, yeah, that you'll strengthen them, strengthen their heart and their mind, lift them up, Father, encourage them to move for you, to be bold and courageous, and to love those around them that they struggle with most. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, thank you very much. Awesome. Hey, um, just to wrap things up, just in there looking at Lucky and thinking about his story, and uh, there is there is something in there for every single person, something to take away, a challenge in there. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, Samuel, the prophet, goes to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the new king of Israel, and Jesse parades his sons before him, the first son comes in, and he's a, he's a cup of hot water, man. He is handsome. He is tall. He looks just like Wolfie with his hair. And, and Samuel goes, that's the guy. And God speaks to his heart, and he says, that's not the guy. He says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And, um, you know, I just want to encourage you in that. Like, like his outward appearance is confronting. It is, bro. You know, he's got front teeth missing and everything. What happened to those? I mean, I meant to ask you. Did they just, is it a fight? Or? Fighting, of course. Yeah, all right. And, uh, and, and like, he said shit six times. Like, I'm not even... Yeah, you did, man. Yeah, serious, yeah. And bloody and pissed. <clears throat> right, and the temptation is to be like, oh, 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 oh. Don't be like that. That's just dumb. Like, this is... This, this church should be the safest place in the world. It should be the safest place for for someone to walk in. And like Lucky, you know, this is Lucky. What four and a half years into being a Christian? How are we going to handle things if a, if a Lucky Takala walks in six months before he becomes a Christian? Like seriously, unplug your butts. Everyone's going to go home and be like, Lucky didn't offend me at all. But then Josh said, unplug your butts at the end. It's like, oh my gosh, like. Seriously, like we're supposed to love people no matter what they look like, right? And, and I just, I don't have a lot of time for religion. I don't have a lot of time for things looking the way that they should look. Let's just be prepared to get messy. Love people where they're at. You know, the way that you treat people is the way that they'll treat you. Forgive others so that God can forgive us. So just go home. And just say to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what, what do you want me to take out of that message? There's a lot to take out, yeah. right? Just pick one thing. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let God talk to me about that. Cool? All right. God bless. Have a great Sunday. I know we've gone a little bit long this morning. I'm okay with that. So I can do that every now and again. Paul preached so long one day that a kid fell asleep, fell out a window and died. He had to, he had to bring him back from the dead. <laughs> so you're all good. All right, God bless. Have a great Sunday, and uh, we'll see you next Sunday. Go have a coffee and hug someone, seeing that's all that Christians do.